Hi, thank you very much. It's really great to be here. Um, as I came in, I was handed a photograph of me taken over 40 years ago down in Sussex, which I will conceal, and so no one can... I was a toddler. <laughs> You've seen it. Oh, dear. Uh, so, but... Uh, Prior to when that photograph was taken, uh, I was actually at university in Wales, um, in Bangor, uh, and really got a love for the principality uh, in the three years I spent there. The first time I ever preached uh, was in Beth Gellert, uh, when I was a student in Bangor, went down to Beth Gellert and preached uh, to an English congregation meeting in a Welsh chapel. Um, what I preached was certainly not memorable. I can't remember what it was. And I've gone on pilgrimage back to Beth Gellert to see the chapel and have demolished it. Uh, possibly, it's nothing to do with me. But uh, uh, in those three years in Wales, um, I, I grew to love this country. And I think it was when I was in Bangor that uh, I really caught something about revival. I was hearing stories of revival, things that had happened in North Wales. Um, and I guess ever since then, I've been praying for revival and in that connection, praying for Wales. Um, and so it is great to be back in Wales uh, and to be here this morning. And so thank you for that. Not bad. Welcome. <laughs> If you've got a Bible with you, would you like to turn to Paul's letter to the Romans and chapter 8? Romans chapter 8. And uh, just wanted us to, to look this morning at verse 31. It comes in the middle of a, a wonderful chapter. But verse 31, where Paul says, What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? What shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? As I say, that comes in the middle of a, a wonderful chapter, but the verses immediately before it, verse 28, uh, he says, We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. He says, those God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. A sequence in uh, verse, uh, verses 29 and 30 of five glorious truths about what God has done. Some have described it as a golden chain. Those he foreknew, he knew beforehand. And those he knew beforehand, he made a decision beforehand about them that they should become like his son so that his son would have many brothers and his son would be the firstborn amongst them. And those he predestined, those he made this decision about beforehand, he called, he justified, he glorified. What shall we say, Paul says in response to this? God is for us. Who can be against us? Paul often actually uses that expression, what shall we say? Uh, it occurs several times in Romans. Just to say, back home in Sheffield, we had 
a lectern like this which swayed just like this and you used to sort of have to go with it otherwise the text so if I'm swaying slightly it's not anointing it's I'm trying to actually read my bible <laughs> yeah they, well they they obviously make them specifically so that they should sway because ours was identical to this however don't be distracted Romans chapter 4 verse 1, Paul says, What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? What shall we say? Chapter 6 verse 1, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? Then into the next chapter, chapter 7 verse 7, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? And then the verse we've looked at in chapter 8 and verse 31 And then into the next chapter, chapter 9 and verse 14, he says, What what then shall we say? Is God unjust? And chapter 9, verse 30, What then shall we say? And you get the impression he either likes this phrase or he's got a good reason for saying it. And I I think he's got a good reason for saying it. He, He wants people to draw conclusions. What shall we say in response? We need to get hold of the truth, process it, and see that, that's got implications. That needs to be applied. It's a good idea whenever we're reading the Bible, when we're, whatever we've read, to then actually quote verse 31 here. What then shall we say in response to this? You've read something. Read a story, read something from the Old Testament, New Testament, one of the Psalms, whatever. What should we say in response to this? Because unless we respond, it's just words. And God wants his word to be what what we believe and then shapes how we behave. Our minds are involved. You you get that distinct impression here in Romans chapter 8 where Paul says, we know, verse 22, we know the whole creation has been groaning. Do we know that? We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. Do we know it? And then he says, I, verse 38, I am convinced that neither death nor life. He's got hold of truth. And he said, what do we say in response to this? Mm. Oh, it leads to this, this, and this. Mm. We need to process the truth. Otherwise, it's just words, it's theory, unrelated to real life. God's word is good seed. It needs to drop into good soil. And good soil is a, a person who says, how do I respond to that? How do, what do I do about that? Whenever we read the Bible, whenever we hear the Bible preached, there's always a response. I, I would love it, and don't get me wrong, I would love it if every time I preached and closed my Bible at the end, go to sit down, if people said, so what? Now that could sound like, oh, that's rubbish, but so what? Truth has always got implications. There's always a therefore. There's always a, well, so this. So Paul has said some terrific things here, and he then says, what shall we say in response to this? Well, when he says this, what's he talking about? Well, those great statements in verses 28, 29, and 30, but also really the whole letter up to this point. And in the whole letter up to this point, 
He has made some great statements. He has demonstrated, first of all, that everyone, whatever their background, whatever race they belong to, everyone has sinned. There's no one righteous, not even one. He's demonstrated that fact, said it's true of the Jews, God's chosen people, and it's true of the nations in general. Everyone has sinned. Everyone is subject to God's judgment and commandments, laws, rules don't actually help the situation. Living, trying to live by the rules doesn't help the situation because there's something so perverse in human nature that when we hear God's good commandments, they actually provoke us to do things we wouldn't have thought about otherwise. And the law that was intended for good actually suggests new ways of sinning. That's, that's what he said in, in the chapters up to here. Everyone has sinned, and he says, the law condemns us rather than helps us. We, we can't help ourselves, as we've been singing indeed this morning. And then he says what God has done. A righteousness from God has been revealed. How's that possible? It's a righteousness that we don't earn, it's given to us, and it's because God set forth his Son as the one who would suffer the wrath of a holy God against sin that we deserve. And so, Jesus, the Son of God, he is God, suffers, as it were, his own wrath against sin in himself. He dies in our place. Our sin that we cannot deal with, we can't erase it as we've been singing, dealt with in Christ. God set forth his son. God has demonstrated his love in this. When we were sinners, Christ died for us. That's the story up to now. And he says, now we are in Christ. We were in Adam. Everyone who is born is in in Adam, the, 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 the father of the human race. In Adam... There's judgment because everyone sins. Adam sinned. Everyone in Adam sins. But God in his great mercy is willing to take us out of Adam and put us into Christ. Instead of looking at us in Adam, he now looks at his son and we are in Christ. And in him, we're made righteous. We're justified. We're standing in grace. Wonderful truths that he says. He says, so what do we say in response to all of this? That obviously demands a response. And I guess for many of us here, it's had a response. We've said, I believe. I repent of my sin. I see I cannot make myself clean. I need a Savior. And now faith is beginning to come. I'm seeing Jesus is the answer. And we've responded. We've accepted Christ as Savior. Maybe there are some here who have never made that response and maybe this morning you're going to. You've heard words already and maybe today is the day when you're going to move out of one category, out of Adam, where all die, all are under the judgment of God and you're going to come into Christ where you're saved forever. What do we say in response to this? Well, our response is we accept the gospel, but Paul is talking about much more than that. He's talking about a change in the way we think, A change in what we believe about God and a change in what we believe about ourselves. What do we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He has demonstrated that God clearly is for us. He knew us 
before time was. He predestined us to be his children. And he justified us, he glorified. If God is for us, when he says, if God is for us, he's not expressing doubt. He's saying, because God is so evidently for us, then the conclusion, the question is, who can be against us? If God is for us, you know, we need a very big picture of God. I've heard someone recently referring to God in a way that, well, I have to confess, it just irritated me and angered me. This, this guy was referring to Daddy God. Now, if, if that's how you refer to God, I'm, I've just offended you, but I'll justify why I, I, I found that. I think that it, it kind of makes God almost twee is the word I was going to use. God is the sovereign God of all creation. Do you remember how the disciples prayed when they've just been forbidden to ever preach again in the name of Jesus? They come, they join together in prayer and say, Sovereign God, you made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and everything. They didn't say, Daddy God. It's great God, the mighty God, sovereign God. And we need a big view of God if we're going to get the sense of what Paul is saying here. If God is for us. Well, who is he? He's the eternal God. And that's a concept, I don't know about you, I can't grasp that. Eternal, without beginning and without end. Before anything was, God was. My mind kind of stops at long before that point. Before anything was, God was. Well, where was he? And from everlasting to everlasting, he is God. He's the creator of everything who imagined it before ever it was. And he said, be, and it was. Formed out of nothing. If he says, cease, it stops. He's God. He's not on our level. He's the eternal God who's the judge of the whole earth. He's all-powerful, omnipotent creator, the sustainer of everything, the controller of everything. He is supreme. Jesus said, Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. That's our God, all authority. He's not one among many. He's not dependent on a popular vote. He's God. The eternal God. It's a wonderful comment in the Psalms. In Psalm 66. Psalm 66 and verse 5. The psalmist says, Come and see what God has done. How awesome his works on, on man's behalf. Come and see what God has done. Verse 3, say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies cringe before you. All the earth bows down to you. Come see what God has done. He is a great God. And this God, who is from everlasting to everlasting, the creator of everything, is for us. He's for us. He knows us. Have you ever met someone famous, 
maybe you have, maybe you haven't. Maybe you, you've just been introduced to someone. Then many years later, many years later, you come across, you happen to come near that person again, and they look at you and say, don't I know you? And you think, wow, they've remembered, remembered me. This, I remember a famous preacher, well, Arthur Wallace, I don't know if that name means anything to you. I met him briefly once. Many years later, many years later, I, I happened to see, I was in a meeting where he was, and he said, how's your wife Mary? And you've got two children. I thought, what? <laughs> For all the people he's ever met, he remembers me. Uh, it's, you think, oh, you kind of feel a bit taller. <laughs> he remembers me. Oh, I must be significant. God says, I know you. He knew us beforehand. He's always known us. He says to you, I know you. If, you. if you're in Christ this morning, this great God looks at you and says, I know you. And it's not just recognizing it's knowing. You know, sometimes you meet people and you feel you're only knowing as much about them as they're prepared to reveal and they're not really revealing very much. You feel you're meeting a, a, a mask. You say a few things. You think, I wonder what lies behind that. God knows what lies behind it. It says, I know you. I know all about you. I'm in relationship with you. This is God. He knows us and he chose us beforehand. Remember who's saying this? Those God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son. Paul is saying this. Paul had hated Jesus. Paul had persecuted the church. Paul had hounded Christians and got them into jail. Some have been killed. Stephen is being stoned to death. Can you imagine a death worse than that? Stephen is being stoned to death, rocks hurled against him until he dies, and Paul is standing there approving. That's who Paul was, but all the time God knew him. And God said, I've chosen you. And the time came, God confronted him and changed him. That's God. He's for us. He has called us. He has justified us so that all that Paul had done cleansed away. Paul couldn't clean himself up. Paul couldn't erase the terrible things he had done. He couldn't work to atone for any of that. Because no matter how hard he worked, he would only be doing what he should do anyway, and there would be no good left over to deal with all the bad things he'd ever done. He couldn't deal with that. But God had justified him and not said, okay, you can come in at the back of the crowd, but into Christ, into God's dearly loved son. Paul, it's Paul who's saying this. God knew us, he predestined us, he justified us, glorified us. God is for us. God has got a vested interest in us. If you buy something that you've saved up for for a long time, it's cost you a lot of money, and finally you've got it. If someone said, can I borrow that? You might mm, I'm not sure. You paid a lot for it. It's, you, know, you prize that, and you want to look after it. God paid a very high price for you and me. He purchased us with the death of his son. He's got a vested interest. We're precious to him. We cost everything. He's for us. Back in Deuteronomy 32, near the end of Deuteronomy, 
There's a wonderful thing that God says about Israel under the Old Covenant. Deuteronomy 32, verse 10. In a desert land he found him, in a barren and howling waste. He shielded him, cared for him. He guarded him as the apple of his eye. You're the apple of God's eye. If you have parents, you've maybe gone to collect your kids from school, see all the kids tumbling out of school, If you saw your child being bullied by someone else, you wouldn't think twice, would you? You'd be in there. It's the apple of your eye. Well, you're the apple of God's eye. He's watching us. He's got a vested interest. He said, I know you. You're mine. We're in Christ. God is for us. What should we say in response to this? If God is for you. If you belong to Christ, God doesn't just tolerate you. God doesn't just put up with you. He loves you. You might say, yeah, but what about all the things that have gone wrong? It doesn't look like God loves me. God has demonstrated his love for you in this, that while you are still a sinner, Christ died for you. You don't need any further proof. He's demonstrated it. And yes, we can go through difficulties, and we do. And Paul speaks about that here in Romans chapter 8. We groan, in, we, we share in the pain of creation. Yeah, but we know God's for us. Because we walk a difficult path. God's for us. We know it. He's demonstrated it. We're the apple of his eye. Whatever we've done, wherever we've been, whatever path we're on, if we are in Christ, then this is true. Devil would slander God to us and say, God doesn't really love you. The Bible says, now think about it. Do the, the, the thinking. Do the therefores. See what God has done. It proves this. God's for us. Well then, who can be against us? Well, the obvious answer is, a lot of things can be against us and a lot of people can be against us. Paul's own answer could be, if, if you look at Paul's story, who can be against you, Paul? Well, public opinion, governments, the churches even attacked him. Principalities and powers, friends deserted him. It, his own story in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, he just slips it in when he's asking people to pray for him. In 1 Corinthians 16 uh, and verse 9, he says... Uh, He says, I'll stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost because a great door for effective work has been opened to me and there are many who oppose me. Who can be against us? Paul's saying many. There are many who oppose me. So what's he saying then? He's not saying that no one can possibly oppose. This is not some kind of superficial triumphalism. You know, if we're in Christ, wow, everything's wonderful from now on. He's not saying that at all. What he's saying is, of course people will oppose. He goes on to speak about angels, demons, the present, the future, height, death. He he speaks about hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. Yeah, there are many things that can be against us. But if God is for us, what's all this stuff? It's like when we have a big view of the God who is for us, it cuts everything else down to size. Those things are very real. But hey, a big view of God makes those things seem small. We need a big view of God. What shall we say in response to this? 
if, if this God is for us, if he has done all of this, then who can be against us? I love reading Isaiah. It's one of my, I guess, one of my favorite books in the Old Testament, in Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah 40 and verse 12. Isaiah 40 verse 12. It says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? Who has understood the mind of the Lord or instructed him as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? And who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They're regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. See, everything gets cut down to size. This is God. And the nations are like a drop in a bucket. You've got a bucket of water. You pour the the water out. What's left? The nations are like that. You're weighing something on the scales. You tip them off the scales, the dust that's left. Well, that's like the nations. He's God. The greatest powers are like, well, what's left in a bucket when you've emptied it, like the dust on the scales when you tip things off. He's a very great God. If we understand the greatness of God, then who can be against us? Isaiah 41, the very next chapter, verse 8. But you, O Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, you descendants of Abraham, my friends, I took you from the ends of the earth, From its farthest corners I called you. I said, you are my servant. I have chosen you and have not rejected you. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. All who rage against you will surely be ashamed and disgraced. Those who oppose you will be as nothing and perish. Though you search for your enemies, you won't find them. Those who wage war against you will be as nothing at all, for I am the Lord your God, who takes hold of your right hand and says to you, do not fear, I will help you. Do not be afraid, O worm Jacob, O little Israel. For I myself will help you, declares the Lord, the Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. If God is for us, who can be against us? He's a very great God. This God who took us from the ends of the earth, who chose us to be his, says, I'm for you. Yeah, they'll rage against you. Enemies will come against you. Circumstances will come against you. But draw this conclusion. Look at the one who's for you. He's, he, he's eternally for you. Do you remember the story? Of course you remember the story of, of young David back in 1 Samuel chapter 17. This stripling goes out to visit his brothers, his big brothers who are in the army, and they're confronting this giant of a man, Goliath. They've all got their armor. David hasn't. He's just a young lad. He's taken 
the sandwich is out to his brothers, really, is, 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 is nobody. But in 1 Samuel 17, verse 45, this little lad David comes before Goliath and he looks up at him and he says, you come against me, verse 45 of 1 Samuel 17, you come against me with a sword and spear and javelin. And uh, just note what he says. He's, he's actually looking at all the weapons. <laughs> There's this giant man. Oh, you've got a sword. Oh, you've got a spear. <laughs> the javelin. If you drop the sword, you've still got a spear and a javelin. I mean, this is decidedly risky. Um, David is standing there without any armor, and he happens to have a sling and a sword, a spear, a javelin. A javelin's got quite a long reach. <laughs> a sword, well, close up, but a spear, a javelin. You come against me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin. I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty. If God is for us, who can be against us? I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. This day the Lord will hand you over to me and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. (laughs) Why? If God is for us. David knew God was for him. And this giant of a man was daring to defy God. And the issue then is Goliath and God. David just happens to be there. It's God. It's God. And in the name of God... David comes against this giant, and of course it happened as he said. And so this man, David, as he grows up, well, at least we don't know when he wrote it, but he says things like Psalm 23 and verse 4, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Yes, the valley of the shadow of death, scary, frightening. But God, God is for us. He knows it. He knows his God. Psalm 27 and verse 1, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evil men advance against me to devour my flesh and so on. It says, though an army besiege, besiege me, my heart will not fear. Why? Because of the Lord, the stronghold of my life. He knows that God is with him. In Psalm 56, and maybe these words are in Paul's mind as he writes those words in Romans chapter 8, but in Psalm 56 verse 9, he says, Then my enemies will turn back when I call for help. By this I will know that God is for me. In God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? So you've got those two phrases. God is for me. What can man do? And that really is what Paul is saying here, isn't it? In in Romans chapter 8. If God is for us, who can be against us do you know that God is for you do you know you know I I said earlier God doesn't just tolerate us it's amazing how many people genuine 
Christians really view God like that, that he just puts up with you. If you could imagine God's face, which of course none of us can, but if you could imagine God's face turned towards you, what do you imagine the expression would be on it? Kind of disapproval? Disappointment? Or what? Well, he's for you. He says, I know you. I know you. Why? Not that we're anything, but we're in Christ. And he chose that we should be in Christ. The devil wants us to believe something other than that. Because if we believe something other than that, we'll have no confidence in God. Our faith really is totally undermined. And so we've got a theoretical faith that will actually make no difference to everyday life. Paul is saying, we've got to make a response to truth, so we've got to be clear of the truth. What do we say in response to this? If God is for us, well, is he? Well, he's demonstrated it at the cross. He's demonstrated it in all that he's done. And it's not a momentary chance thing that he saved us. He chose to do it before he created anything. He foreknew us. He predestined us. He is clearly for you. He is for me. Then, who can be against us? And the answer, as I said, plenty. Yeah, but God's for us. In our personal circumstances, we need to believe it. We will go through difficulties. Who knows what difficulties lie ahead? Who knows what challenges will come to our faith? Is God's love always on trial? Are we always saying, does God really love me? Where's the evidence? Is he on trial? No, he's demonstrated his love. He's not on trial. We are clear of it. Clear on it. As Paul goes through being flogged, being shipwrecked, having his friends desert him, he doesn't say, God doesn't love me anymore. He says, I know God loves me. I know it. That's how I can press through these things. That's how I can cope. Can you, are you clear on God's love? Are you saying, then who can be against me? I'm sure of the love of God. And of course, corporately, we need to be clear. God is for us. Who can be against us? Public opinion can be against us. General apathy around can be against us. We can listen to the propaganda and say, really, what hope does the church have in this day and age? We've got to be satisfied with being small, satisfied with just a few, if that's all we can get. Yeah, we, we know the climate of society. Now, if God is for us, who can be against us? The God who said in the person of his son, I will build my church. Well, if God is for us, here are all kinds of pronouncements about the state of Wales today. People look at the history of Wales, the 1859 revival, the 1945 revival, and then say, yeah, but that's all changed now. You can travel around Wales as uh, you see incredibly large chapels in incredibly small communities. And you look at the date in the stonework, late 19th century, I think it was the 1859 revival led to that. Now you see these chapels in ruins. I said the one I first preached in, demolished. You see them turned over to alternative use. You think, oh, the tide has gone out. And now it's almost as if it would be better if that hadn't happened because there's such a hardness, 
such a resistance. And we can listen to all of that and say, well, we'll struggle, but we'll praise God for what we've got. Yeah, we'll praise God for what we've got. But if God is for us, who can be against us? Public opinion, general apathy, cultural issues. Yes, it'll all be there, but if God is for us, it cuts all that down to size. Because if God intends some great work, he'll do it. He's God. (laughs) He is God. He rules over everything. He is the sovereign Lord. So what does God intend to do in Wrexham? What does God intend to do across North Wales? We're not just into hype. We're not just trying to psych ourselves up. It's logical. What do we say in response to this? We look at the facts. Paul set them out. What's our response to that? Add it all up. What does it come to? Hey, God's for us. Think of young David. Do we feel like that? Maybe as a church here, just a small little group. Young David facing Goliath. The Goliath of Wales and Welsh apathy. and Well, it's God. They've defied the Lord God. Well, let's see what's, let's see what's going to fall. Let's see what advances they're going to be. Paul is a very logical man. States the facts as it were, puts a line underneath it and says, now what does all that add up to? Well, this is what it adds up to. God is on our side. It's wonderful to know God is for us. Terrifying to hear him say, I don't know you. Jesus said the time will come at the end when he will say that to some. They will think that all was well and he will say, I don't know you. I never knew you. There are two groups of people on planet Earth, those God knows and those God doesn't know. And knowing is not knowing about, it's knowing in relationship. There will be those who think they're all right, but they've got no relationship with the living God. And there are those who, by the grace of God, have got a relationship with him. Do you know that God will say to you, I know you, come on in, I know you. We need to know which group we're in. And if we can't be sure of that this morning, we need to make that decision because we don't know how long we have to make that decision. It's so vital that we know which side we're on, which group we're in. But if we are amongst God's people, then we must allow the Holy Spirit to get it into the very depths of our being, this fact, God loves me. And he loves me with more love than I could ever comprehend. And nothing is ever going to change that. Nothing can ever separate me from the love of God. Whatever the world hurls at me, whatever people say, whatever happens, if God is for me, yes, he is, then who can be against me? Everything gets cut down to size. We need to be convinced of it. We need to be stating it to our conscience continually because we have an accuser who goes around like a roaring lion looking to see whose faith he can swallow up. Yes, that is relentless. Next time we may be on our, we're on our own and we, we, we kneel to pray, then the accusing voice will be there. God's not going to listen to you. No, God is for me. It'll be clear on it. We need to keep stating it to our conscience. And we need to know that this is not kind of a mood on God's part. He doesn't have moods. He is eternally for us. 
It's not for us one day and another day indifferent. God is eternally for me. It's an unchanging, eternal fact. Therefore, we press through, we persevere, we refuse to be daunted by circumstances because we're believing in a God who's so much bigger than us. And he has caught us up into his great plan, and he intends to work that plan through. He's the sovereign Lord, and we trust him. Let's pray. Father, you are greater than our words can ever describe and greater than our minds can comprehend. But, oh God, I ask you, Lord, even this morning for revelation by your Spirit, for us to get a bigger view of you. Lord, to have a sense of awe in your presence, that you're not a little God, you're not just our mate, but you're the sovereign Lord, and that you do all that you intend to do. When your hand is stretched out, no one can turn it back. Lord, I pray for rever- I pray for those who have a very low view of themselves. I pray for those who have heard criticisms that have caused them just to kind of shrink and shrivel inside and doubt that you, you, you're even willing to recognize them. Lord, I ask you for a revelation this morning of your eternal love that you say, to the one who hides in the background, I know you. Oh God, I ask you for responses of faith this morning towards you. And I pray for those who are treading a difficult path. Ask you for those who feel everything's against them. And Lord, I pray, oh God, for a fresh confidence. Yeah, but God's for me. Then what are these problems? What's that opposition? It's very real, but God is more real, and he's forever. God, I ask you, Lord, for a resurgent faith in the church here, for Wales, for Wrexham. God, I ask you for confidence that, Lord, no matter what the experts predict, it's what you say that matters, and you're for us. You're for your church And it's through the church you intend your wisdom will be made known. Lord, we ask you for rising faith in Jesus' name. Amen.